This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 25th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. When it comes time for a president's budget to actually land in Congress and go through the usual meat grinder, the compromises that emerge are often on the side of more spending for you and more spending for me. But cutting spending demands more than a compromise on the side of bigger budgets. Jonathan Bidlack is president of the Coalition to Reduce Spending. He says the silver lining of inefficient government is there are lots of ways to cut. The constant refrain from uh, me and I think you and other people who care about spending restraint is that the only way Congress ever compromises on spending is to give each other more spending. I'll vote for yours if you vote for mine. And that seems to be entirely backwards if you care about spending restraint. And how do we get to a point where in order for Congress people to compromise on spending, that they're doing so in the form of cuts? Right. I think there are two components. I mean, one and the most obvious is that you need demand from the electorate. You need people who care about this issue enough to vote on it. And we have that sort of, I think, with a segment of the Republican Party, uh, not all. And we have very little, unfortunately, within the Democratic Party. And so one big task is just getting people to realize the nature of the problem and, and to demand uh, solutions along the lines they do with other policy issues. Um, the second part of that equation, I think, is a more technical one, which is that you know, we need rules that restrain spending. I think a lot of times people take this perspective that if we just elect a couple new people, that that's going to change the scenario that we face. And you know, experience teaches us otherwise. And so you know, when you look at something like the Budget Control Act passed in 2011 as one example, you know, spending went down for consecutive years for the first time since the Korean War. Now, obviously, spending is at a level higher than I would I would prefer it to be, and probably yourself and and most of your listeners. But it, it points this idea that when you have rules in place, uh, whether you know it's some sort of you know ultimately uh, constitutional means, but also just something statutory or even an informal norm, it puts a restraint on spending that you know sure you can break through, you can you can end up saying we're going to modify that or go higher or whatever. But it creates an expectation, and that has a very powerful effect. And so, you know, organizationally, I mean, we we very much advocate all the time for for reducing, uh, for not just reducing spending and taking those wins where we can get them, but also trying to create uh, actual checks. Well, let me run through some ideas here, and you just shoot them down or pump <laughs> pump them up as you uh, see appropriate. Zero baseline budgeting for every department every year. Yeah, I think it would be great. Uh, you know, obviously, explain explain what that is. Sure. So, you know, in 1974. Uh, uh, the 1974 Budget Act was passed that that basically imposed this idea that we were going to increase spending every year to uh, provide the same level of goods and services as were provided in the previous year. And so, um, you know, they, they basically when CBO provides a spending estimate for a bill, they may say it has no effect on the baseline, but that does not mean that spending is not actually increasing. And so, uh, zero-based budgeting would basically say we're going to use the previous year's level of spending as our sort of benchmark uh, as to whether or not spending is increasing and going forward. Okay, so good idea. Absolutely. Is it technically difficult? No, <laughs> and arguably, it's much simpler. It's much much simpler to use the previous year's level of spending than it is to, uh, uh, you know, actually calculate a baseline every day. All right, uh, our president has been challenged in some ways to articulate uh, a clear message on uh, several things, uh, but one thing I think that he could argue for that would 
be easy to understand. It's very intuitive. People can grasp it right away. A spending freeze for for perhaps multiple years of over the and when I say spending freeze, and you know what I mean, mm -hmm. I mean freezing all federal spending for two three years. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be great. I think it's probably politically unfeasible, and the reason is that. You know, both parties, as we know, have sort of sacred cows that they want to spend on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the idea that you're going to go and, and uh, I mean, look at the fight, for example, that happened with respect to sequestration a few years ago, right? Sequestration was not actually a spending freeze or a spending cut. Uh, it was just a cut, again, relative to that increasing baseline. And uh, the political will within both parties was very much lacking. So, um, obviously, a spending freeze would be great. I would argue go a little bit further than that. But uh, from a political standpoint, it's probably very unlikely. So uh, that would then probably you say that's politically unfeasible. So the penny plan, which is uh, removing one percent of federal spending each year for some number of years, that's probably off the table too. Yeah, I mean, I mean as a as a political matter, probably. I mean, it's again also a great idea. I mean, I think you know any of these sort of ideas are all very similar, right? It's really it really comes down to a matter of, uh, I guess you could say, marketing and and sort of how you know how. Uh, willing people are to sort of you know grab hold and uh, and and run with those ideas, but I think it's great. I know Congressman Mark Sanford right has, has been a big proponent of, this, of the penny plan. I think it's a good idea. Again, whether or not it's feasible, I don't know. And this points to the fact that you know and to, uh, to the point I made earlier, which is that until you end up getting rules that create some sort of incentive for restraint, relying on members of Congress or the president, uh, regardless, frankly, of of how of what they say on the stump or or even how ideologically committed they may seem. Uh, is probably a probably a pipe dream. As Antonin Scalia said, the campaign promise is the least binding form of social commitment. <laughs> um, a constitutional amendment that would limit uh, spending either to uh, what we have now plus inflation or some uh, nominal percentage increase. Yeah, I mean, this is in many ways the gold standard, right? The thing that we would strive for. Uh, it's also arguably the thing that we are the farthest away from. Uh, so yes, I mean that would be great. I mean, if you look at you know we were talking before about uh, you know Sweden and Switzerland, right? Switzerland has had a constitutional amendment that has restrained spending, and as a result, you know if you if you look at what's happened in in you know uh, to spending in Sweden or Switzerland compared to the United States or other EU countries during the last you know ten years, it's very striking. Those countries that had an actual uh, statutory or constitutional restraint saw very different fiscal outcomes than than the, the other countries, and so um, you know I would argue it doesn't necessarily need to even be constitutional to get you know a good a good chunk of uh, of what you're trying to accomplish. But uh, uh, but yeah, I mean obviously it'd be great to have a constitutional amendment. Uh, ben Friedman here at the Cato Institute talks a lot about uh, military spending and how those priorities uh, are doled out. One of his ideas is to eliminate this apparent gentleman's agreement among the branches of the military uh, to suggest that they all get you know, roughly the same amount of money, they roughly get the same share of the increase whenever Pentagon spending goes up. He argues uh, we should be working to get rid of that agreement 
and uh, let the, the various branches of the military try to eat each other's lunch <laughs> uh, in, in when it comes to spending priorities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. Obviously, it's hard to know how it would play out. I think you know, I, I would say I've probably never met anyone who's ex-military who doesn't acknowledge, you know, substantial amounts of waste in the Pentagon, um, and uh, and and you know, they've obviously seen it firsthand. And so, I think there are a lot of things we could do. I mean, the the, the Pentagon itself, right? As you know, back in January, uh, they had sort of buried a study that they had done of their own bureaucratic waste, but they basically found uh, $125 billion over five years that could be cut just in just in bureaucracy. We're not even talking about the actual, you know, spending beyond that. And, uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot to be said for, for thinking about strategy first and then allocating the dollars to accomplish that strategy. And unfortunately, when it comes to the Pentagon specifically, we oftentimes have a problem where where members of Congress want to go and, and throw money at, at programs or things that the Pentagon doesn't even want. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the gold standard there really would be to say, look, this is our strategy. This is what we need to accomplish it and then allocate funds appropriately. I think, frankly, you know, even a lot of libertarians and conservatives who might want to see uh, reduced spending at the Pentagon would go along with that if there were actual uh, thought put into into why they're requesting those dollars. Yeah, that's the well, that's the Christopher Preble argument here at Cato. He says we need to decide what our military is for, and then we need to Absolutely. decide how we're going to allocate money to achieve that uh, known, agreed upon purpose. Um, so, Donald Trump, with his tax plan and his spending plans, the the one thing, a couple of things that we know about his spending plans are. Increase military spending by more than $50 billion. Don't do anything to uh, entitlements. Uh, get rid of parts of Obamacare. And on the tax side, cut taxes by hundreds of billions of dollars a year. So what we, what we know is no spending restraint basically, uh, very little, and a, a proposed decrease in federal revenue. And it's, it's troubling to me in particular that his opening salvo with respect to budget talks was let's increase military spending, which seems to me mm -hmm. very problematic. And as I, as I know you believe that that is a problem that is seems to afflict Republicans more than Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, uh, you know, if there is one area of potential optimism, you know, we've, we've talked about Mick Mulvaney, and obviously he does, uh, he is on the record as sort of uh, being more responsible with respect to Pentagon spending. He's also on the record very much as uh, being a proponent of entitlement reform. And so uh, perhaps there's some, some you know, there, there may not be a willingness to tackle entitlement spending uh, today. Uh, although, of course, as we all know, at some point we're going to have to, whether we like it or not, the, uh, the fiscal imbalances cannot just be uh, put on autopilot and, uh, you know, into perpetuity. But uh, perhaps there's some opportunity for, you know, Mulvaney or uh, Chairman Price to uh, get across to the president the importance of reforming entitlement spending. You know, as you know, you know we're looking at two thirds of the budget being made up over uh, being made up of entitlement spending. And so, these fights that we have between uh, you know the Pentagon budget and non-defense discretionary are, in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, sort of missing the the forest for the trees. And so, uh, but you're right. You know, there's there's a lot on the table right now that isn't really good from the standpoint of of fiscal responsibility. So, in terms of finding uh, cuts to make. Uh, assuming we're not going to get some grand plan that will compel Congress people to 
have even more bitter fights, which is actually what I want when it comes to <laughs> spending, is I would like those fights to be more angry and more bitter and uh, if, if they can be, more partisan uh, over who gets an, a fixed pot, who gets a piece of that in the short term fixed pie. Mm-hmm. Um, where would we find cuts, if, if that's not on the table, where would we find cuts to say th- most easily the low-hanging fruit, say this is a whole bunch of money that we can just get rid of? Well, one of the, uh, I guess, if you want to say the silver lining of government being so inefficient is that it uh, it makes it much easier to identify areas where you could potentially cut spending. And so I can think of a couple of a couple of straightforward examples. I mean, one is, you know, look, the GAO comes out with a report every year where they talk about uh, duplication in spending across government agencies and departments. You know, that number varies, but it's probably on the order of, you know, 25 uh, billion a year on the low end. And so uh, there's potentially a lot of spending that could be reduced that way. I mean, that's obviously not uh, sufficient to balance the federal budget, but it's a good starting place. And it's something that should at least in theory be politically feasible. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the the Pentagon's own study, just looking at bureaucratic waste at, in in their department. I mean, that's 125 billion in five years. Uh, a lot's also been written about uh, improper payments uh, in in Medicare, as another example, right? That most estimates put that at around 150 billion dollars a year. So, uh, you know, we were talking before that uh, you know, if you look at tr- Trump's budget, pl- uh, sorry, his tax plan, you know, you're looking at a, a, a supposed quote, costs, and I put costs in quotes, of, of say, $6 trillion, trillion over 10 years. So $600 billion you know, per year, let's say some of that you can, you can, quote, pay for with growth, and maybe you need to identify $400 billion of spending cuts. Well, I mean, just the, the couple of things that we just talked about, that's $200 billion a year in spending cuts. So you're already halfway there. So, uh, and you're not even talking about changing priorities, cutting programs, reforming programs, whatever. You're really just talking about rooting out some examples of, of waste and duplication. So Theoretically, right, there should be plenty of, of things that, that could be on the table that we could that we could uh, start with. There are, you know, there are some risks here that I think are really underappreciated with respect to our spending and the uh, countries and people that we depend on to continue to gobble up U.S. issued debt. You know, we spend two hundred plus billion dollars a year on interest on our debt. If the uh, Various countries and uh, various people who buy U.S. debt suddenly decide, eh, this isn't a good deal anymore. That number could skyrocket in a very short period of time. Yeah, you know, that's the uh, $64,000 question or the, I guess, if you will, the $20 trillion question. Uh, you know, I think there's there's obviously a lot of discussion about the potential for a debt crisis and the reality is nobody knows, right? You have people on the, on the left who, you know, the Paul Krugmans of the world who tend to say this is potentially a problem, but it's a problem much farther down the road. You have, uh, you know, libertarians who, who see it being a problem today and tomorrow. Uh, the reality is it's hard to know when when you know the potential appetite for buying up our government bonds could could dry up now obviously that's not a situation that we want to ever find ourselves in and uh, and that's I think the 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 argument for uh, for taking action now and you know on my end I mean I actually think that the, the scariest thing is not that we have some sort of you know inflection point whereby all of a sudden you know everyone stops buying our debt I think the bigger risk is that we have just some sort of slow and managed decline that you know sort of like that frog in the in the boiling water right you slowly crank it up and you don't really realize what's happening um, look if we keep spending like this we keep building up uh, you know the national debt and and taking on obligations that we ultimately can't afford 
uh, it just creates opportunities for other countries in the world to be on a sounder fiscal footing and and ultimately pass us by. And you know, much has been made about you know China or Russia or other examples like that. You know, potentially having the ability to compete with the United States. Um, but even you know, you look at these European countries. I mean. A lot of the reason why the United States, I think, so far has not really faced any consequences is because the situations of many other countries in the in the eurozone um, are far worse, right? I mean, Britain has a, a debt to GDP that's far greater than the United States. Now, maybe that's again, maybe that's sustainable for them. You know, maybe even more sustainable for us. I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. But uh, you know, the, the situation we want to prevent is not just that that something dramatic happens, but also that we just kind of proceed down this road toward a, a, a managed decline. You know, that's the you know, we saw that in Rome, and uh, and it's certainly not not something we want to see here. Jonathan Bidlack is president of the Coalition to Reduce Spending. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.